times. That's great. All right. Well, we have we've been in uh, kind of a couple different mini series, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into what we have been doing. All I want to say about it is that we've been redigging some wells. And if you don't, if you're newer to where we're at right now, you're coming to us today uh, fresh, and you haven't been part of this series that we've been in then you can go back and listen to the uh, mp3s on the website and get the podcast and get caught up but we've been in faith and expectation we've been redigging wells out of genesis 26 uh, of also relationships been talking a lot about relationships spent several weeks on relationships today we're going to jump into kind of a small mini series and i don't know how long it's going to go but we're going to talk about discipleship so Pastor Hammond came and he shared with us, here's four things. You guys need to redig these things and you need to go for it. And uh, so we're, we're getting into it. And I know for, for some, as soon as you hear the word discipleship, there can be some really negative connotations associated with that. You've heard stories or you've had experiences yourself. And you've got a bad taste in your mouth as a result of some of those things. You've been hurt relationally uh, because someone has abused uh, that relational context. But um, I, I want to, we want to open up a can here and, and go for it together. Uh, this morning, as we're redigging discipleship, this first installment, uh, I want to call this Be My Disciple. Be My Disciple. We'll find out who's saying that here in just a minute. Salvation and discipleship. I've heard it said that the gift of salvation costs us how much? Nothing. Sorry, a little tricky. The gift of salvation through grace, what is that? That's a free gift. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't do anything to get it. We can't be good enough. Salvation is a free gift. It costs us nothing. Discipleship, however, that will cost us everything. Justification or salvation, it, it happens in a moment. Discipleship is a lifelong journey. It's a lifelong journey. Salvation is something that God does for us. And discipleship is a process that we do with God. There's a great emphasis in the church today about making a decision to accept Jesus into your heart. And that's been there for quite a while. Just, hey, I, wanna, I want you to come forward. I want you, want you to just receive Jesus. Just ask him in your heart and he's going to come in and he's going to change your life and things are going to be so much better. It's going to be so much easier. And you find out quickly soon after that that it's just the opposite. That it doesn't necessarily mean that life is easier. It just means that Jesus is now bringing you through it. He's now living his life through you. And we get to learn how to walk that out. But we hear very little today about it, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, as always, we, we need you. Come and do what you love to do, which is to just give us revelation help us to see you're going to shine some light on some things for us and i know you're going to do that even to me as you're doing 
speaking through me. So we thank you for your word. We ask that you'd bless it to our bodies, that it would be like that living bread that goes in and just brings nutrition spiritually to us. Amen. Amen. Matthew 28, 19. I'm just going to hit a couple of scriptures. We won't spend time here. We'll camp out in another section. But let me just go through a couple of these because these refer to disciples and disciplers and discipleship and all this kind of good stuff. So Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. We're familiar with that. Um, I think for some of us, I don't know about you, I grew up in the church, that's been kind of ambiguous to me. What exactly does that mean? What are you talking about, Lord? Luke 14, 26. If you want to be my disciple, and there's our title, be my disciple. If you want to be my disciple, did you hear that option in there? If you want to be. I think that's pretty cool. I, I don't get Jesus' concerns. And, and we're going to see some things here, what, you know, what he does when there's a huge crowd around, or you know, he's not trying to do everything to please everyone. If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. And everybody in the crowd went, what? You're going to have to hate everybody by comparison, your father and your mother, your wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not playing. Luke 16, 24 through 25, if any of you wants to be my disciple, you must put aside your selfish ambition. Once you've done that, then you've got to take up and shoulder your cross, and then I want you to follow me. Oh, we're just talking about the beautiful American dream, aren't we, right there? Here's a quote from a man about discipleship. No one can choose such a life for themselves. No one can call themselves to such a destiny. The call of Jesus is stronger than the barrier. At this critical moment, nothing on earth, however sacred, must be allowed be to come between Jesus and the one that he has called. This was a young Lutheran pastor back during World War II. He joined the German underground to work for the defeat of Hitler and bring about reformation in his nation. He was one of the most important theologians of the 20th century. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, cost, The Cost of Discipleship. He was a man willing to pay for the truth that he was willing to buy. We sang about that this morning. And for his personal efforts to take Hitler out, he was executed at 39 years old. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century at 39 years old. I'd say he probably had something to say about discipleship that maybe we should listen to. He says nothing should come between the call of Jesus and that person. The goal. I think it's important that as we start off, that we talk about what's the goal of discipleship. 
Where are we going? What's the point? So what is the goal or the result that we hope for of biblical discipleship? In, a, in an oversimplified manner, think of it this way, you know, as a coach, and again, the analogy is going to break down, but you think about a coach with, with, their, with his players. To create players who are followers, in other words, there's buy-in, total buy-in. I don't know if you, if you played on different teams, my coaches expected total buy-in, on and off the court. It didn't matter. During the season, you didn't party, that's what they expected. You either did it or you were off the team. They didn't apologize for that, that was the policy. He's, the coach is about creating followers who uh, they, they have buy-in with the coach's strategies, with the coach's directions, the coach's skills that he's trying to impart and teach. The coach's passion. He expects you to know the playbook. He expects you to practice the plays. And he expects you to follow the plays. We've had these different jokers on teams that I've played with before. I've been one of those jokers from time to time. The rest of the team is all running the play. And you got Home Slice over here playing around the corner. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. Why? Because he wasn't paying attention in practice. He was doing his own thing. Had guys that didn't buy in. Guys that came, we had a no drinking policy during the season. Guys that would come to practice in the morning, drunk, still drunk from the night before, out there on the court trying to play, puking their you-know-what out. Because they didn't buy in. They didn't understand the level of play that they were called to. And my coach in college stuff, he would say, to, listen, you're never going to have this opportunity again. Unless you go play in Europe or, you know, play in the NBA or something like that, you're never going to have an opportunity to play at this level again. And every time you play pickup ball from then on out, you're going to wish, oh, that you could have this time back. Don't waste it. coaches who are preparing players to become uh, a team that will work together for the win. And the coach defines what the win is. We had wins as a team that even if we didn't win the game by the score at the end of it, we still won in our book because we were playing against ourselves. We wanted to get better and better and better. So what is the goal? What's the result of biblical discipleship? To become like Jesus. In a word, Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. This, this disciple is somebody who believes Jesus. And yet sometimes struggles with unbelief. This is somebody who worships Jesus. Sometimes struggles with total devotion. But that's the expectation of our Lord. Serves Jesus, follows Jesus, loves Jesus, obeys Jesus by putting his words into action. That's a disciple. That's what 
We're going after it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that He's doing in our lives. So the starting point, what's the starting point of discipleship? Can you imagine a player, I can't say I've ever had the audacity to do this, but can you imagine a player coming up and telling the coach what they were going to do and how they were going to do it? Coach, let me teach you a few things about how this is going to work. Think that's going to work, Courtney? No. Courtney, no. She's tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> it does not work. When I played basketball in college, you know, they're floating your scholarship. They're, they're paying your way. They own you. They own you. You think you own yourself. They own you. And they will prove it to you time and time again. Oh, you, you think you're... You think you're running this? Well, let me just, let me, let's reevaluate that scholarship. How about we relook at that? Let's go over the paperwork again. Oh, you know what, coach? I, I'm, I'm starting to see it your way. It's just, uh, I'm getting revelation here. So what is the starting point is, first of all, we've got to ask God, what is his goal? This isn't about what we want. This isn't about what we're going to get out of it. This is about what does God want? What is his goal? What is his goal for us? That starts with his goal for him. You remember when we did the series on Wired for Worship? I shared with you something by John Piper, and he said that we cannot be righteous, nor God be righteous, if we value anything above that which is supremely valuable. And I said, what is the most supremely valuable thing to God? And we got a lot of answers back, said, us. It's like, sorry to pop your bubble, it's not us. He's not a child-centered parent. His most valuable thing, again, he could not be righteous unless he valued that which is most valuable. Supremely valuable, and that is him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit delight in one another more than anything else. Their glory is paramount to anything, even above us. That should produce in us a great deal of security and trust in Him because He's not going to go back and forth based upon like human parents tend to do, depending on what their kids are doing. He's the rock that we can stand on. So Jesus recruited, he called us, saved us, and now he lays claim to our lives. Well, of all the nerve, how could you, I know you've never thought that before. Christ-likeness, why is it important? Okay, Christ-likeness, what's the big deal? What's the big deal that Kumar looks like Jesus, talks like Jesus, acts like Jesus. So glad you asked, Kumar. Why is Christ-likeness important? You see, if you read the Bible, but it's really spelled out in a great book by a man named Vern Fromke called Ultimate Intention. And he lays it out and he says that Father God is after a family, a vast family, of sons and daughters. 
sons and daughters that look just like who? Jesus. That just look exactly like Jesus. Talk like him. He's looking for those types of people. Those types of sons and daughters. And that's his goal for you. To be like Jesus. Jesus, the perfect son of God, is the only one who could successfully pay for the sins of mankind. Now, we can't do that. He's already done that. But we are part of this rescue mission. We get to be part of this with him to give those lost sons and daughters. And what we're talking about when we say that is those who don't know Christ yet. Kat was up here and she was talking about, you know, going through this series, Breaking Free. And she was just sharing just briefly, you know, just kind of general about her own life. And we all have a testimony of what we could share about how Jesus has set us free, set us free from ourselves, set us free from the bondage of sin, so that we could be alive to Jesus, alive to Jesus. God, may we never get familiar with that. May thanksgiving continually pour out of our hearts. God has poured out his grace and forgiveness on us to show the world his love. He's done that for us in order that they could see. Think about when special military missions are called for special forces or special missions. They call for special forces. You, you don't just send anyone. You, you call you know, your, your top teams, your, your guys you can send in and you can count on them. You know that they're going to they're gonna do the work. Jesus has trained up and raised up disciples. Uh, I remember somebody w- was saying that, you know, Christians, uh, disciples are the only ones that are going to change the world. Christians aren't going to do much of anything. If you go back to our history and how we started when we started talking about Passover, we started talking about Jesus saving us, coming, the big rescue mission, all that. And then we moved on and we said, you know, that, that rescue mission, that bought us, Jesus literally with his blood, he bought us peace with God. We're no longer an object of God's wrath. We're an object of his love now. But then, that's not enough. We we. A lot of people settle for just having peace with God and the peace of God in their life. But then God calls us to live this life until we got to Pentecost 50 years later and we realize that God's desire is to pour out His Holy Spirit on us and empower us to live this life. Impossible life. All the things that Jesus was telling His disciples and different people in the crowd. He's saying, you know, live this way and do this and do that. And they're, like, they're going, yeah, no problem. And they realize they couldn't do it. They could never live up to the law, the one that Jesus fulfilled in himself. Mere saved people are not enough. Disciples are what is required. You don't need a PhD. You don't even have to look good. You don't have to have theology, this thing memorized frontwards and backwards or anything like that. A heart completely given and a life laid down for the one who gave everything. That is what is required.
and I, you know, and so we go, yeah, that's right, that's right, and but I don't know if we really understand what he's talking about. Coach says, I want you to come play on my team. Hey, no problem. That sounds great. Scholarships, all the, all the bennies. And then we realize, wow, there's a price tag associated with this. You own me now. I want to talk to you about a, a group of people. I want us to go back in history a little bit. I want us to take a look at the, the system or the context that Jesus used for discipleship. It's kind of like the program he pulled from when he started up his thing when Christianity first began. All right? And that's called a word called Talmudin. All right? T-A-L-M-I-D-I-N. Peter was a disciple, the follower of Jesus. He became what we know now as the Apostle Peter. He became a very strong leader in the early church. And he was presented with an opportunity because he was what by trade? What was his, what was his trade? Fisherman, and he wasn't all that great of a fisherman, you know, but he made ends meet and he did what he could. And then this guy comes along. And Peter, along with a few other guys, they could have stayed with their fishing nets. That's where normal life was. That's where living in the possible happened. Sometimes you caught them, sometimes you didn't. And, uh, but there was something about him, and I, I, I wish I could get a better handle on this. You know, can, I, I just, can you, you know what I'm saying? You, you, see, you read these stories and you go, seriously, it was that easy? It was ju just like Jesus didn't do, you know, backflips and, you know, anything like that. He, he said, I'm, I'm calling you to, to follow me, and they did. They left everything that they had. They left their future they weren't just leaving their past behind them. They were leaving their future, their livelihood. Everything was laid down to follow this man. They had done nothing yet to prove anything to anyone that he was who he would eventually claim he was. Because I, I try and bring this, these types of stories into modern day, right now. Jesus hadn't come yet. And he shows up. And I'm so glad he came 2,000 years ago. Because I'm having an easier time believing that back then than I am. Because I think I would be one of those guys that missed the boat. At least I'm very concerned that I would be. This Jesus journey provides us this ancient path, this historical looking back, enable us to... Uh, to look at what is discipleship, what's kind of the heart, and, you know, we look at philosophy and methodology behind it. Now, a, at four to five years old, young Jewish children would begin studying the Torah, and I, I think it was mostly just males that would do this, and they emphasized reading and writing, 
and scholars believe that it's likely that most had memorized the entire Torah, the entire law, by the time they had finished our equivalent of about sixth grade. The entire thing, they memorized it. So that's just what they did, just memorize it, memorize it, memorize it. This is quite an achievement, uh, being that none of them, you know, they didn't have the law on their iPad, they didn't have any of these things. The only scrolls that were available were the ones that the scribes had copied. There weren't many of them, and you had to actually study these things at the, at the temple. So that is phenomenal. There was no take-home or anything like that. You just locked it in your memory, and then you'd go home and, and work on it. So some of the secondary-age students would go on to learn the family trade and continue studying the prophets and, and oral traditions. Very few, uh, the cream of the crop, the most outstanding students, they would go and pursue uh, the possibility of studying with a famous rabbi. So the guys that didn't make the cut, they would just go work with their dads. They would just do the family business. The guys who showed real promise, then they would go and pursue a famous rabbi, and they would often leave home for a long period of time, and these, these students were called Talmudim, or Talmud, which in Hebrew is translated disciple. But the Talmud, as we're going to look at here, in contrast, is pretty different than what we would refer to as a student. We get our idea, uh, kind of the American mindset of a student today, we glean from the Greek culture, not the Hebrew one. The Greek mindset is one that is interested in gaining the knowledge of the teacher for my own personal advance and gain. Okay, that's what our universities are made up. You pay a certain amount of money, you sit down in a classroom, you get their knowledge, uh, and you get a piece of paper at the end that says you know something, and then you go on to do whatever you're going to do. So you're able to further yourself. Now the Talmudim, the Talmud, they, their goal was not to gain information from the teacher. And again, we're looking at what's the context that Jesus pulled from? Where's the program that he grabbed? Obviously, he knew all along, but what's the one that he used? The Talmudim were not just interested in getting information from their teacher. Their primary thing, their primary goal was to be like their teacher. Hebrews had something going on. I, I think about my professors at college. Uh, I can't think of one of them I wanted to be like. To become who that teacher is. Be my disciple. Be my disciple. In an age that values independence, self-esteem, finding one's true self, all these different things. I mean, the life of the Talmud is countercultural, to say the least. They were passionately devoted to their rabbi. They noted everything that they did, everything that they said. The relationship between the rabbi and the Talmud was very intense at times, but very personal, very relational. Not only was this Talmud interested in becoming like just like this rabbi, but the rabbi was interested in imparting who he was 
to the one that he was discipling. As the rabbi taught the scriptures, the Talmudim listened and they watched and they imitated so that they could become just like that person. Eventually, this young Jedi master would become, they would become teachers themselves and they would pass on their lifestyle to others. So again, the Greek, they learned the information to fulfill their own dreams, their own personal ambition, where the Hebrew is learning the person in order to become like them. Because in Christ, all learning is relational. All of it. So in Jesus, you're not just getting information from someone. You're becoming like who Christ is in them. And we're going to get to that another time. Just today we're talking about be my disciple. So this is the education system in which Jesus grew up in in Galilee. Uh, There were more famous Jewish teachers from Galilee than anywhere else in the world. Jesus was one of the most sought after rabbis by the Talmudim. And you can probably understand why. So, you know, guy starts doing magic tricks and you can't figure out what he's doing, how he's hiding the cards, and you're going to want to get with this guy because he can draw a crowd just like that. There's cash involved in this deal. There's, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, world global circuit. We're going to be riding, um, you know, the chicks are going to be everywhere gravitating toward us. It's going to be awesome. Come on. That's just reality. That's what people were thinking. They're going, there's money to be had. There's power to be had. Let's do this. We're rolling with Jesus. And so the decision of the Talmudim to follow a rabbi meant total commitment, total devotion to become like him, to apply the word of God to their lives. And let's read here in John 13, 15. Jesus says, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. The servant is not greater than his master. Hmm. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. The servant's not greater than his master. The messenger is not more important than the one who sends them. You know these things. Now do them. Now do them. So in order for, to follow Jesus where he went, the Talmudim seeks to go, um, he seeks, Jesus seeks to go through our lives. He asks, he asks us to go with him, to be with him, to follow him to live in his word, to imitate his actions. Think about Peter. You know, Peter, most of the time when we talk about him, we refer to uh, his failures, you know, his failure to stand up, be strong when Jesus was at his worst and most vulnerable time, facing the cross, and he denies him, he leaves him hanging. Peter's the one who sinks down in the water because he took his eyes off Jesus. But let's, let's be really honest here. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter, he got out of the boat. 
Everybody else stayed in the boat. He got out of the boat. And you see, Jesus is saying to us, he's saying, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. The servant's not greater than his master. So he's, he's saying, now, these things that I've showed you, that I've demonstrated to you, now go and do them. So I'm a disciple, right, Jesus? So Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. He's remembering back. I believe Holy Spirit's quickening to him in that moment, and this is a serious storm. And Jesus had told them, do what I do. If I'm doing it, you can do it. The context that you've grown up in is to become like your rabbi, not to just get the information from him. Nobody who's just getting information is going to get out on that water in the face of that storm when things are rocking that heavy. So he's looking at him, and he's going, I think I'm supposed to get out on the water right now. You know, I sit down and... uh, get together with Chuck Crouch from time to time, you know, and we've had these different conversations. We're going, okay, I read in the Word about Jesus walking up to people that are broken, destroyed, spirit, soul, and body, and He restores them and He heals them with a touch and with a word. And we go, I can't do that. Well, are you a disciple of Jesus? So I'm with Chuck from time to time, and I see him in the safety of the boat, and he's going, you know what? My Jesus, he's out on the water. And he gets out of the boat, and he starts getting out there where nobody else can help him. Laying hands on people. Is anything happening? I don't know. I just saw Jesus do it. I just saw Jesus do it. I just read about Jesus doing this, so I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to get out of the safety of the boat and out into the risk of the sea and the unknown. Peter had never seen or even conceived of anyone walking on the water before. It's not like, oh, this is commonplace. This happened all the time. No big deal. I can do it too. And he did. As a disciple of Jesus what should we think about the impossible? How about one must shoulder their cross daily and die to selfish ambition in order to gain Christ? Jesus says you've got to lose your life. And you're going, I think I like the part about walking on the water. A little bit more than this whole shouldering across, this form of torture. Jesus said, do it. Jesus did it. So I believe he can do it, living his life through me by his Holy Spirit. One must leave the shore of impossibility and plunge into the dimension of faith that knows no boundaries. Jesus did it so he can do it through me. One must be willing to reach the unreached, touch the untouched, love the unloved 
in order to release God's compassion and justice. He did it time and time again. So I know that I can do it and that he can do it through me. I know that is true. Jesus did it so that I know that he can do this through me to live a life of holiness, of undistracted devotion to Jesus. Jesus did it. In a sin-soaked generation, there's nothing more radical or revolutionary. 2 Timothy 1.9 God has saved us and called us to live a holy life. A contemporary of Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, said this back in the 1800s. He says, there's but one end for a man or woman who preaches purity, holiness, and repentance. Off with his head. You had better not try to preach repentance until you've pledged your head to heaven. John the Baptist, he learned this all too well, didn't he? He came preaching a message of repentance. Like the majority of Jesus' disciples and many of his followers, one must be willing to embrace his suffering, embrace the call to their very lives if necessary. I want to end with this. The Apostle Paul, one of the great Jewish Talmud and one of the intellectual elite of his day, he understood what it meant to live a life worthy of his calling. This is what he says in Philippians 3. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. Along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him. My determined purpose, my determined purpose is that I may know Him more deeply perceiving and recognizing understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and clearly and in the same way come to know the power of his resurrection and that i may share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in my spirit into his likeness into his likeness what's the goal what's the end result that we're looking for for there to be amongst us as his sons and daughters those who are like Christ. A stand. Jesus, to be like you in every way. Uh, that offends my mind incredibly because I know that that's impossible for me to do that. But Holy Spirit, nothing is impossible with you. you. You took these men who were fearful, scared to death, denying you and leaving you hanging in your, in your most vulnerable moment, and you changed them into men who believed that if they saw you do something or they heard that you had done something, they said, he can do that through me as well.
Lord, take everyone in this room, everyone who calls Christ Church North Shore their home, everyone who calls Jesus Lord of their life in the north end of Seattle, Lord, make us into a people, into a team that embrace your direction, who respond to your claim on our lives. Help us to get out of the boat. Push us out of the boat if you have to. Lord, do what you love to do, making us into your likeness. We give you all the glory for it, and we're saying, God, thank you so much. Thank you for this people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Look for one opportunity that you can get out of the boat. Break out. Break out of your comfort zone. Break out of the safety of where, wherever you have been. We all know what, those, what our boats are, you know. But he says, be my disciple. Be my disciple. Amen.